0: There is a weird fact you pick up when studying the archaeology of London. Until about 40 years ago, we had a plethora of finds from the Roman era, and of course plenty from medieval London. But for the longest time, we had scant traces of the Saxon era. For years, we had no idea where Londonwick was located, for example. But since the 1980s, our understanding of Saxon London has come on leaps and bounds with rich and diverse finds found all over the region. But as you can no doubt tell, when we say Saxon London, that covers an awful lot of time and an awful lot of Londons. There is the early wick, the Essex market. There is Mercy in London wick, offers great emporium. There is Alfred's Burr, the small community behind the large ancient Roman walls built on the ruins of Londinium, where the River Walbrook met the River Thames. And then there is this era, the late Anglo-Saxon pre-Norman period. And alas, the archeological records are still surprisingly very rare compared to the times before and the times later, which is a pity. Because in many ways, this is the most important era of London's history. London from the year 1006 until 1076 was about to go through some profound changes. London was about to witness England literally become a failed state, be conquered, liberated, conquered again, liberated again, and then conquered a third time. The 11th century is many things, but it sure as heck ain't boring. However, while it's fun to try and tell how London fit within this amazing wider narrative, we need to step away from the tale of England and focus our attention upon London specifically, just for a brief while, because London was changing, drastically. It was about to become the most important settlement in England, The heart of the nation. In time, its capital. The foci of all things military, financial and political. Now this process would not happen overnight. It was to be caused by a slow drip procession of events that will take decades and centuries to get there. But it starts now, in the reign of King Ethelred and the men who came after him. Hi, my name is Saul, and I'm genuinely pleased to welcome you to the 30th chapter of the story of London a look at how London changed politically, physically, and symbolically during the 11th century. This is The Birth of the Capital, Part 1 Show Me the Money. Once you get into the Anglo-Saxon history, any cursory study of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle will show that during this era, London had clearly become more important. I mean, sure, from the point of view of this podcast, it's always been important, but compared to the mentions it had previous to the late 10th and early 11th century, it's really noticeable. But there may be a simple explanation for this, The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, especially the earliest version, which was written sometime between 1018 and 1023, mentions London so often, and in such a positive light, it has been argued by some historians that the original writer came from London, so of course he would include it as often as possible. Regardless of the innate bias of such a writer, however, London had changed, and had become much more crucial to England. Why? Well, as you can imagine, there was a combination of reasons, some obvious, some less so. In the obvious category, London was surrounded by tough ancient walls supplemented by a newly dug deep ditch. Its population were well known for their belligerence and had been known as such for decades and it had already defeated one massive Viking army in the year 994, recently saw off a giant fleet of Vikings, and they were just about to do that whole thing again. In the 11th century, London was to be attacked many times by some of the most ferocious armies in Northern Europe, and it would never fall in battle. So great was this military reputation that in 1016, there's gonna come a moment, where an English army refuses to fight unless it is supplemented by the forces of London. Added to this, as I've tried to impress over several preceding chapters, London was intimately identified as the headquarters of the late Anglo-Saxon naval tradition. In the decades to come, London was to have arguably one of the most powerful fleets in northern Europe based in or around it. And there were many false dawns in the development of this. Yet London is always there, a base, a bastion, and a place that spurs the idea onwards, right up until Norman times. So in terms of military factors, this alone was to see London's increased importance be justified. But it takes a heck of a lot more than ferocious residents to make a capital. Then, as now... The true foundation of London's power was its wealth, and indeed it is during this era that sees London emerge as a place where wealth gravitates towards. Why? Well, show us the money. No, no, literally show me the money. We need to talk about coins and coin production. Now, the study of old coins for historical fun and knowledge is a field of history I have immense respect for, The experts in this field write amazing volumes of academic worth that discover intricate detail from these artefacts and extract such a depth of knowledge that I'm staggered by them. And while, unfortunately, their texts can sometimes be somewhat drier than the Gobi Desert on a particularly dry Wednesday, they do contain treasures untold, historically as well as physically about the past. As such, in understanding what I'm about to say, please take on board that I'm simplifying very complex and nuanced discussions into a digestible format. In a nutshell, London was to become one of the cornerstones of the creation of coins for the nation of England. Back in the era of King Offa, and just afterwards, it had certainly been a powerful coin maker, but its importance as a centre of coin creation had waxed and waned over the centuries. This, however, had began to change, and drastically, from the year 980 onwards. It was from 980, and over the next few decades, that London became a de facto powerhouse for coin-making, and because of that, increasingly more important to state finance, and eventually became the headquarters of the early English monetary system. We know the sheer volume of coins produced in the post 980 era increased staggering amounts. The cause had been King Edgar in the 970s, reforming the way coins were produced in England, standardizing the design, and taking steps to reduce counterfeiting by reissuing all the coins. Under King Ethelred of England, this process increased, happening five separate times, which maintained the quality of his coins, as well as keeping a lid upon counterfeiting and coin clipping. The nation of England, under King Ethelred and his successors, at least in terms of coin production, became a very effective machine, integrating the entire kingdom into a well-regulated and controlled network. Everywhere that legally produced coins would include identical designs. The place it was created in, the name of the man who created it, and the name of the king under whose authority they made the coin. Simple, effective, literally a stamp of legitimacy. Between 970 and 1070, over 100 places in England were involved in the minting of coins, with between 40 and 70% of these places active at any given time. However, half of all the coins made originated from the big four coin-making centres of England, and London made up the lion's share of this half, especially after 990. So from 980, there are more coins being produced in London, and in 990, a second Royal Mint is opened in London, just across the river in Southwark. The historical consensus is that it began as a overflow facility for the main mint, but that it continued to work in tandem from there on. And this mint in Southwark, by the way, for me, is kind of proof that a bridge existed between London and the South Bank from just before this era, but that's by the by. The twin mints of London and Southwark, being as they were only a few hundred yards away from each other, were utterly unique. Nowhere else in England were there two royal mints so close to one another. And if you wish to grasp just how many coins they were producing, well, Professor Rory Naismith of King's College, University of London, trawled the 51 volumes of the Silogie of Coins of the British Isles. In this document, he found we had traces of 2,635 coins from York minted in this era. 2,453 coins from Lincoln, minted in this era. 1,143 coins from Winchester, minted in this era. And 4,422 coins from London and Southwark, minted in this era. We know that during the reign of King Edgar, there were 10 coin makers or moneyers working in London. By the era of Ethelred, that number had shot up to 31, rising to 69 within a decade of his death. The closest anywhere else in England got was one place briefly reaching 40. So what generated this increase in coin-making? Well, the ongoing wars with the Vikings. England was in a war economy. Armies needed to be paid for, taxes needed to be gathered, and those Dane needed collecting. So this was the spark. For London, on top of this, its growing role in logistical importance for the kingdom and for naval assets was also a factor. So even when the rest of England was suffering from economic contractions, London continued to be a place under increased demand for coins. Its moneyers seem to have become the pivotal middlemen in the production of the coins that were to be given out in the Danegels. It's actually possible that each and every one of the Danegels from the year 991 had been organized and assembled in London. And we certainly know the massive 1012 payoff was organized and exchanged by London. So this begs the question, where did all the bullion for these coins come from? As I will cover a bit later, It seems to be Germany, mostly. But it wasn't just raw bullion being shipped in that provided all this silver. London was different, also, from other coin makers in that no other mint town had such a wide-reaching impact as it did. We think this may have been down to sharp dealing by London's moneyers and financial agents. It's a bit complicated to explain, but in a nutshell, at the time, there was this mechanism... Where, if you wanted to land grab someone's land, you could pay any unpaid taxes they owed on it and by default could now claim it. Now, while I admit some uncertainty on the exact mechanism here, it appears that moneyers and bullion dealers across the southeast. Began to find themselves coming under London's influence and control by them doing something similar in terms of bullion acquisition. At least I think that was what was going on. But this utter dominance of the monetary system, where at one point you could simply say London and Southwark produced 40% of all the coins made in England, did eventually fade and pass in the decade before the Norman invasion and afterwards. London's central position as coin maker was not as great. But be that as it may, London was, during the specific era we are looking at, becoming an organizational linchpin for English monetary policy. It was combining economic and administrative power in an utterly unique way. Another example is that London became the center for the making and distribution of the coin dyes and stamps themselves, a clear sign of its dominance during this era. Moneyers from elsewhere had to come to London to get their coin dyes. And archaeological finds in the region known as the Thames Exchange, near the north end of where today Southwark Bridge is, have suggested this was the region where the moneyers had to come. And this massive production of coins was not just being done to pay off Danish Vikings and to give to the rich landowners of England. Excavations in the Vintry region of London have found huge hoards of 10th and 11th century coins, with a significant number of these cut into halves and quarters. The need for small change like this to exist in such large numbers is proof for many that it wasn't just the rich who used coinage to pay for things. In London, Everyone was using coins and cash. But increasing influence within the monetary system was only one part of why London was becoming so rich. The other part? Trade. Now, some good news. Apparently, we know a hell of a lot about the growing and cosmopolitan trade network of London in the 11th century because of a law code called for Ethelred. This code of laws, as well as containing a whole heap of regulations governing the production of coins, also contained an entire section specifically about the trade regulations and tariffs and laws for the Port of London. Which is useful for a podcast like this. Tradition says this law code may have actually been written by Bishop Wolfstone himself, who was now the Archbishop of York, and it provides us with an immense insight into the booming trade and complex trade regulations of late Saxon London. Except it may not do that at all. As time has passed and scholarship has improved, the providence of 4 Ethelred has been investigated much more deeply, and most experts now believe it is in fact two documents, one written much later than the other, and then they were stuck together at an even later date. The document, for example, uses French terms in some parts, and English legal documents only started having French terms in them when the Normans took over and having a document with French terms in the trade descriptions makes some think that the laws it contains do not describe London in the 11th century, but more probably the city in the 12th or even the 13th century. So keep on board, not everyone is convinced for Ethelred refers to London in the 11th century. However, There are additional materials, including eyewitnesses' descriptions of the docks in the 11th century, that, for me, supplement 4th Aethelred and give it credence. It may have been adapted and changed over the centuries that followed, but the idea is that these rules were based upon traditions and local laws that date to this time, if not a tad earlier. The customs, which govern the conduct of foreign merchants as they arrived in London at this time, do seem fairly well established. If Fort Red was composed much later, given that none of its tolls or customs appear new in any way, then these systems do seem to have been around for quite some time, and in my argument, they were around from the 11th century. So basically, what I'm going to do is just warn you, my listeners, that maybe the tariff system wasn't as sophisticated in this era as I'm about to describe it as. But I do believe it was heading that way. And I for one do believe that the laws described in 4 Ethelred* are contemporaneous to this era. Okay, so what are we talking about here? Basically London at this time had two main dock areas split in the middle by the bridge. One was the dock called Ethelred's Hyde, located in today's Bull Wharf, and that dock was used by boats coming to London downriver from the likes of Oxfordshire. It was all about internal English river trade. But a new dock had been established on the other side of the bridge, in the region we today call Billingsgate. That was for foreign ships to use. The moment any foreign trader arrived at Billingsgate... The formal customs procedure was that royal officials could exercise the king's right of preemption, which is a nice way to say that the king got first dibs to purchase their goods at a beneficial price. So when they arrived at Billingsgate, merchants from somewhere like Flanders or Normandy had to display their goods for preemption and pay a customs toll. Nice and simple. But we are talking about human beings here and since when do human beings ever keep things nice and simple, especially when it comes to business and trade and tax and tolls? Of course there were exceptions. So we know. One example would be the wine merchants from what we today would call the region where Germany and France and the Bellinux nations all kind of meet together. But back in the 11th century, folks would have just called the region Lotharingia. It appears that these guys from there had a pretty long-standing deal to forego the king's right to preemption. Basically, any merchants from the towns of Huy or Lige or Nivers would pay their customs toll to sell their goods in England and then pay a special additional payment. Now, this additional payment is really interesting. And no, I'm not just saying that because I'm a kind of nerd who gets awkwardly excited by 11th century legal fees. (laughs) I mean, yes, I am a nerd who gets awkwardly excited by 11th century legal fiends, I admit it, but this additional payment really is insightful into how the town was running itself. See, this additional payment is called ostensio in Latin, which seems to be the Latin translation of the word scavage, which in turn derives from an old English word, shiwung, meaning a showing or a display. Basically, this special rule, which i um, just going to call the scavage fee, meant that the merchants from these three towns sailed up to Billingsgate docks, paid the toll to trade, and then paid the scavenge fee, which centuries later was recognised as quittance from the display of merchandise. Or in other words, they paid this fee so they didn't have to do the whole king's preemption thing. Where it gets interesting is because, in a separate document dating back to this era, the moment these guys paid Scavage, they could travel beyond the wharves and Thames Street and could take up lodgings in London. Basically, this whole thing exposes a really big insight into how London saw itself at this time. The port clearly operated under different rules from the town, and Thames Street probably served as a boundary line for the port jurisdiction along the shore. This distinction between port and town was apparent from earlier as well. The docklands of late Saxon London and all the rights to taxation and tolls were the kings to collect or to forgive. But once you went beyond Thames Street, then it was open for all and under the jurisdiction of London town itself. Now... All the foreign merchants who ever visited London, be they the ones who paid scavage or those who didn't, were limited in the amount of time they could spend in London to 40 days and 40 nights, which is very biblical. But it gets interesting when you consider that the merchants who did pay scavage had to inform the local Reeve of the location of their lodgings. In other words, where they were going to be staying for this less than 40 day duration visit and then they had to wait three days before unpacking their goods for sale. Anybody disobeying this regulation, by the way, risked forfeiting their goods. This three-day waiting period gave an opportunity for the sheriff to visit the hostels to assess and collect the scavenged due, if it hadn't already been paid. Oh, and for the record, there is a post called Shire Reeve, a title that will eventually become the title of Sheriff. But I'll talk more about Shire Reeves later. We. Just need to get back to those foreign merchants traveling beyond Thames Street and residing in London. It appears that the hosts of these foreign merchants were usually either local London merchants themselves or people normally involved in the wine trade on their own account or through agents. As was the case elsewhere, the hosts themselves probably exercised their own right of preemption on the foreigners' goods. Added to that, they mostly actively traded on their own and on the foreigners' behalf, in a nutshell, the profits made from scavage and their own preemption helped to incentivize the hosts to assist the royal officials, the sheriff and the Reeves, in controlling and monitoring the activities and behavior of their foreign guests. There are a lot of bespoke trade deals suggesting an awareness of differing needs and differing deals with merchants from many different ports and locations. Preemption and hosting rules were not limited to wine. According to multiple sources, the royal officials were also interested in silver and gold cups, in gemstones and in cloth and linen from Constantinople, in furs from Rugensburg and in coats of mail from Germanic cities like Mainz although some sources do imply however that these luxury goods were not expected with every shipment preemption and hosting rules also appear in connection with woad merchants the westari woad became big business in london by the 13th century and again there are hints that this trade started in the 11th century a history of the woad trade in london shows that several unnamed merchants, who most probably came from the Picardie region of France, the most famous centre of production of woad, had their own set of rules to trade in London. Uh, according to those rules, merchants were not allowed to store their woad in houses or cellars, but were forced to display their goods at the quayside at London and only sell or exchange them with London merchants under delegated rights of preemption. References to open display of woad strongly suggest, and later sources do kind of confirm, that it was being shipped in barrels, probably as bald woad in bulk rather than the finished dried powder. At the quayside, the woad merchants also paid one halfpenny to the king in toll. They were not allowed to travel into the city or sell their goods anywhere else, it seems there were other complicated rules in place for a group of men known as the men of the emperor which refers to the holy roman emperor in germany and not the actual roman emperor in constantinople and these men tended to deal in bullion and metals these guys were actually so important to the moneyers of London that they actually ended up with the same rights and privileges as London residents themselves, and most assumed they were representatives of the economic powerhouse that was 11th century Cologne at the time, or from some other rich and profitable entrepot in the Rhineland. Away from rules and regulations to do with these foreign merchants, we see tolls relating to the importation of timber, cloth, fish, and wine, as well as goods that would have presumably have been sourced much more locally to London. Hens, eggs, and dairy products, which could well have been sold by women. Apparently, breaking any of these rules was technically a breach of the King's peace. After all, the docks were under the King's jurisdiction, and a fine of £5 for breaching the King's protection, for instance, had been widespread across the whole of England, except the bit that's designated the Dane law since the time of King Alfred. The same fine of £5 was also applied to anyone who claimed to have paid a toll, but they just couldn't find anyone to vouch for the warranty of that, because you just know that happened a lot. Now, when we say merchants, it wasn't just images of rich men in fur-lined robes or lean-looking sailors looking for an eye for profit doing this trading. Some of the biggest merchants around were churchmen, We know that by as early as the 8th century, there were toll exemptions for bishops and abbesses who were actively organising trade by operating cargo ships that ran along the River Watson from the region around Canterbury and then along the River Thames to London. London was basically cementing its role as an ideal meeting point for national and international trade, as we said. We had two large dockside areas. One was at Billingates for foreign trade, one side of the bridge, and Bull Wharf, a.k.a. Ethelred designated for traffic coming from the interior of England. But that dock did as much business as the other. Goods were moving in and out of London on a large scale during this era. And the best example of this for me, brooches. Soft tin and lead alloy brooches were a beloved late Anglo-Saxon fashion accessory and during this era seemed to have become a London speciality. These brooches were not only made in London but they were exported heavily in the 11th century. Now where in London was this lead alloy brooch trade based? We don't know but we have found a bunch of half-finished brooches and pewter rings and beads when digging the London sewers near Bow Church so possibly They could have been based around there. So whomever did make them and wherever they were based in London, they sold a load of these things up in Lancashire and in eastern England. We've also found traces of them in the Netherlands, in Dublin and in Germany. So here we can see London originating goods being dealt with via the trade networks to the Irish Sea, across the North Sea and down the river networks of northwestern Europe which cements the idea that this was a two-way trade driving London's growth. The emergent city's workshops were at the economic and technological forefront of the industry of the 11th century, with an increasing importance in both external foreign markets and internal domestic ones. Proof of that can be seen in the fact that the most desired and prized pottery in London during this era is known as Saxon Shellyware which was mostly made in the Oxford region, and moved in huge quantities by River to London, which had ample coin-using customers ready to buy it. This is one heck of a trade centre, people, any way you look at it. So, things that started making London the capital city it was to become, during the 11th century, we begin to see London had a unique reputation as a martial city, a city of defiance and militancy, that it was to resist wave after wave of foreign invader. It was a city that consistently appeared to be the heart of the English fleets. It became the central hub of English national monetary policy, briefly becoming the principal coin maker and bullion importer in the country, with an increasing influence upon the financial needs of the country. Wealth draws wealth, after all, which in turn is reflected with it becoming increasingly successful as a trade hub and commercial centre. Complex laws on duties and customs are backed by increasingly complex bureaucratic support networks, denoting increased sophistication and specialisation. This is not just a town by a river. It is becoming a nexus for several elements all converging at the same time, starting the process of elevating London above all other cities and towns in England. But this is not all that is needed to denote a capital. We need to examine the political and spiritual changes that late Anglo-Saxon London was facing. And that's what we're going to get to in the next part. So, coming immediately after this, The Birth of a Capital, Part 2. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. I'll do my normal thanks and goodbye after the next bit, and I'll see you in the next part.